Gordon in LA, I thought this is beautiful weather outside. <laughs> I was watching the news a couple nights ago and they said a place that's hot, Phoenix, at midnight would be a hundred degrees. And the coolest part of the day, six o'clock in the morning, it was ninety degrees. So here we got pretty good weather, I think. <laughs> Not too bad. I think the bottom line of the sermon I have today is is about marriage. So think about marriage. You want to, and I'm going to tell you two stories, stories I've I've brought out before, somewhat in a different light. But I want us to think about it in the line of marriage. I'll probably add some and take some from the stories. Here was a a young man who was really interested in marrying a woman, but he wanted, he set his standards on a number 10, you know, 10 being the greatest, best looking woman, greatest build. She would have what he thought was poise and everything. And he sought out to find this woman because he wanted to marry a 10. He had his expectations really high. And he searched and searched, and he finally found what he thought was a number 10. And he sought out to marry the young lady, only she wasn't as young as he thought. So they got married, and they went on their honeymoon the first night. The poor guy who sought out a number 10 found he had a number half or one. Because the first thing she did was to wash her face, and a lot of her beauty disappeared. She began to continue by taking off her hair, taking out an eye, taking off an arm, removing a leg, and finally removing her girdle, and he fled. (laughs) Because she wasn't what he thought. She was false all the way around. But he was looking at a number 10 and come up with a number one or a half. And why is that? Because so often as people, we look on the outward appearance. So what did Christ have to say to the scribes and Pharisees? He said, you have this knack, this thing of making the outside look fantastic, but inside is corrupt. Well, that's what this fellow found was something false, really looking for a number 10 and found a number 1. And the other story is about a marriage, too. There was another young man who went to an island, and he asked around, he said, I'm looking for a hunting and fishing guide. I want the best that you can find. And they said, well, we have a guy, and they began to laugh. Well, what's wrong? And they said, oh, he's a good guy. But they laughed. So they pointed him to the man's house to be a good guide. And he's sitting there talking with the man. And he asked the man, he said, uh, they say you're the greatest around, but they all laugh about it. They all, they all smile and laugh because of, of who you are, I guess. He said, well, let me tell you the story. In marriage on this island, it's common to 
offer the father of the bride-to-be one or maybe two cows. And that's a great gift to the, to the father. But I looked around all over. I looked at the, what people would call a ten, and a five, and an eight, and a seven, and all these different ones. And I found this young lady who most people thought was a number one. She was shy. She didn't have any self-confidence. And he said, I looked at her and I watched her, and I gave her father seven cows. Unheard of. So everybody on the island looked at him as a goofball because he paid ten cows for a, a woman that was basically, in their opinion, a one. But he saw a ten. That's what he saw. He looked into her heart and he could see what she was. And directly the woman, the wife, came walking in and her appearance was fabulous. What had happened was he transformed her from a one by man standards to a ten who had confidence, who had poise, who had dignity, who had respect and honor. Just like we've been going through honoring God. God wants our honor. And he presented for her an unheard of gift. So I'm going to ask you a question. I, I woke up about three weeks ago about... 3, 3.30 in the morning, and I was just troubled, and I went out to the storage room where I could be quiet and turn the light on, and I wrote down a group of questions I asked myself. And then as I was working this sermon and coming up with this, I added one question, the first question that I want to ask is, and maybe you write this down on the paper. Ask yourself, who am I? Am I an outwardly ten bride-to-be, or am I an inwardly ten bride-to-be? Because our Savior wants a ten. He wants an inward ten. I think of Esther when I think of a ten inwardly. Here was a young woman, a Jewish lady, Jewish girl, a uh, member of the king's current wife disrespected him. He had her put away. He sought out all the virgins he could in that, or had them search out the virgins. And Esther was one that was brought in too. But here is a girl who was brought in front of a eunuch who was put in charge. The eunuch saw a tent. Not outwardly. He saw a ten inwardly. And he gave her special training. And this girl, Esther, Adasa, listened, studied, obeyed, followed, and walked the path that was required. And we know she became queen. Where the others who had the outward appearance of a ten were really something less than that. I also think of Ruth, another young lady that 
inwardly was a 10. She was ready to go and do everything required of her. So again, I can ask the question, who am I? Am I a fake, outwardly looking? I mean, I'm, I get along with everybody around, but when I'm in by myself, when nobody's around, I'm a total different person. So you have to ask yourself that question. Then it brings me, since I asked that, and we, some of it came up here in uh, Sermonette and, Ser- and uh, Daryl's announcements, the next question that I asked in that first question that night was, in my life of being in the church and being called by God, because you see, God selected each one of us. He knew who you were. He knew your capabilities, just like we know in the, the talents. He gives everybody the talents that they're capable of. And some put their whole heart into it and progress far. And some, because they think they are better than anybody else, get one talent. And because they thought they were better, because they put themselves in a better position, they didn't do nothing. They come up short, didn't they? So the question is, in my life in the church, have I made any spiritual changes? Am I changing my life to look more like Christ? To look like a 10? Have I set my goal to be a number 10? Or something less? Now, we've had sermons, like Daryl was pointing out, you hear these things time and time again from sermons. We're, we're saying, you know, you have to change. And we say, yes, you're right. I know I have to change. But I understand God's an austere person and He's going to require of me twice what He gives me and I can't live up to that. Well, I asked myself, sitting there in that room four o'clock in the morning, have I changed spiritually? And as I came into 2000, year 2000, and came into this little group, I look back and say, in that time period, have I changed? In the past ten years, what have I changed to follow Christ's standards? Do I look like the bride Christ wants? A ten. In my heart. In my life. The way I respond. God gives us instructors just like Adasa had. He gives us instructors to say, if you do it this way, if you follow this path, and you do these things, you put this clothing on, and you, you respond this way, you'll be a ten. Now, Adasa listened. She made the changes that were required. And too often, we can look back in history in the church and see where so many of them Many of the people, friends that we've had, were not willing to listen. They didn't listen when Mr. Armstrong said back in 79 and 80, my job's done. Get the church ready. I'm calling in the bride. Work with them. Get them to a number 10. 
But so many didn't listen. So many put it aside. So I ask myself that question, have I changed? Well, what do I change? So the second question I wrote down, the third one you can put on your paper, is I, have I ever sat down and made a list of the things I need to change? Now, I, I thought about that and I said, well, Nelson, if you did and it gets out, <laughs> you'll probably be the laughing stock of the town, you know? So it's difficult. I understand that. It's difficult to write down, these are the things I have to change. But give it some thought. Can you write down, based on what God's given to us, maybe we like to drink too much, maybe we like to watch too much TV, maybe we like to play, maybe we like to do anything other than follow God's direction. You know, it's difficult to even write those things down. In Jeremiah 17:9, it says, The heart of man is deceitful. You know, our hearts will deceive us. We have to understand that. We, we can get deceived pretty easy, not only by Satan, but basically by ourselves, because we can think, hey, I am great. I am a number ten. Nobody can tell me what to do. He says, the heart's deceitful above all things, and desperately, really outwardly wicked. Who can understand it? We have a hard time understanding our heart. And so I say, can I write down the changes I need to make? What do I do wrong? What do I do wrong? Mark. Let's go to Mark chapter 7. I know I've got changes. I know I do things not right. I know I find a problem in my life. Mark chapter 7 and verse 14. And when he had called the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man that enters into his body that defiles him, but the things which come from in him, from out of him, these are the things that defile the man. So Christ said, it's what's inside you, inside your heart, inside the way you live your life that brings you short of being a number 10 bride. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Open up your ears. Listen to what the Father wants us to know. And when he had entered into the house and the people and his disciples asked him concerning the parable, he said to them, Are you also, uh, so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatsoever things from without enters into the man, it cannot defile him? Because I know they were talking about food. But it's also the things outside you. The television, the music, the pressure by co-workers or friends or whatever. Those things are outside you. 
person with true character can put that aside, can't they? They can block their mind to uh, the pressures that people bring upon them. Verse 18, and he said, uh, I mean, verse 19, because it enters not into your heart. So it's within inside of you. It doesn't enter into your heart because it enters not into your heart, but it comes to the belly and goes out through the draught. Uh, it purges all meat. So you can bring things in. You can listen to them. You can hear music that's not right. If you decide in your heart that, hey, that's okay, you can watch television programs that are portraying witchcraft. Well, that's okay. I understand that, that. But you're allowing that because your heart is saying, that's okay. It's with all the enemy. I, I like that. It kind of makes me happy. Or I see mayhem and gore and, you know, mass killings and all these things when God says that's not what he wants. And we've gone through these things. How many times from here at the lectern have we heard time and time and time again, these things are going to corrupt you because it's already in your heart to receive, to, to, to enjoy that. Where I saw a, bits of a, a movie where a young man wanted to be a runner. And his friend took him to a party where they were drinking and drugs and all things. And he said, that's not for me. His integrity was not that way. So his heart was set on something different. And he wouldn't allow the wrong things inside. For from out of the heart of men, verse 21, proceeds evil thoughts. So here's some things that maybe we could write down as, do I have a list of things I need to change? First thing he says is adultery. Christ says that mentally you can commit adultery, besides physically. The next thing he says is fornication. So the first two have to do with the killing of your body, and they're contrary to the laws of God. Murder. You want a list of things that you can put down that, hey, I need to change. I like to see murder. I like to watch people being killed on television or the movies. Theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride. Oh, there's a good one in it. I'm greater than anybody else. Is that pride? I know more than anybody else. I can do, do it better than anybody. That means when you say that, you can do it better than Christ and better than the Father. Because he says there's no, none good, no, not one. Foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the human being. So we want to make a list. You want to think of things that you might have to do. What comes out of your heart? 
In Galatians 9, uh, 5, 19 through 21, goes through the same thing again. The works of the flesh. The things that's inside a man comes out of the person. And he goes on to say in verse 21, the latter part, he says, of which I've told you before. He went through all the same things, heresies, sedition, murder, all that. i told you before, as I also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is our life, if this is what's proceeding out of us, then we need to change, don't we? Christ is looking for a ten. Where do you stand? How are you doing? Which was the next question as I went through that and I thought all these things and read those over and let them settle in my mind and saying, how am I doing? Am I a ten? A five? Maybe a half? Where do I stand? How am I doing with what God has been for, He's been telling to us, teaching us, saying, this is the way you have to live your life. Hosea chapter 14. How am I doing? Now, I can sit there and look at somebody else and say, I know I'm doing better than they are. That becomes pride, doesn't it? That becomes arrogant attitudes. I'm greater than the rest. Christ said there in Matthew 7, before you take and look into the other person's eye and take their little quirks or maybe their little warts out of there, look into yourself. Take the beam out of your eye, he says, because we are full of them. So Hosea 14, verse 9, God inspired Hosea to write, Who is wise? And he shall understand these things prudent, and he shall know them. Are you wise? If you are, you'll understand. Prudent, and you'll know them. For the ways of the eternal are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. Where do you stand? How are you doing? When again your question asks, who am I? Who just who am I? And Matthew seven verse sixteen through twenty one talks about trees and how you can judge yourself, not not somebody else. It's it's self in self judgment. You shall know them by their fruits. Okay? Terry's been going through a series of sermonettes on the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits that relate to who is God or what God is. Love starts out with love and you have to ask yourself, how much love do I have? Am I willing to give my life? That, that's the kind of love that Christ gave. So he said, by their fruits. So go back, well, with those sermonettes, go back and read Galatians 5, 22 and 23. 
read what it says there. That is the attributes of God. That's God's character. That's something that we need to look at. By their fruits you shall know them. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? No, you don't do that. You go to a fig tree for figs and a grapevine for grapes. And God's looking for good fruit. He's looking for changes that you're making in your life. So are you looking back at the things that God says and tells us in Galatians 5, 21? I mean, uh, 19 through 21? Is that what we find in our, our life? Or 22 and 23? Even so, verse 17, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. So again, you have to ask yourself, what kind of a tree am I? What is my output? When someone contacts me, how do I present myself to them? As a thorn? Or a thistle? Or as a good tree? A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. God selected you. He knows that you have qualities to bring forth good fruit. Or He wouldn't have picked you. You didn't pick this way of life. You didn't go out there and seek it out. And might think you did, but God knew you when He called you. He gave every one of us that was called back under Mr. Armstrong the same opportunities. It's like He did with the talents. He just knew some could do more and some could do less, and so He put some in a little better position and others, but he gave to everyone the knowledge. And how you used that knowledge and what you did with it was up to you. And so he called you and gave you that opportunity. Every tree, verse 19, that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. That is a thing that we really need to put into our minds every day and realize that if we keep sloughing off, if we keep being a false bride, thinking we're a 10 or a 9 or an 8 that we don't have to do anymore, he says, if you don't measure to the standards that I set, you're going to be cut down cast in the fire. That fire is tribulation. Now, I don't want to go to tribulation, so I got to thinking, uh, I'm not going to tell you the list of things I have. I take three or four pages probably, but, you know, it's not for you to know my problems. It's not for you to know your wife's problems or judge your wife or your husband or your neighbor or your children in that aspect of their growth. If they've been called by God and selected, it's their responsibility. Verse 20, Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. 
Not every one that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of God. So just because we can say, I come to services, just because we can say, I sit in church, we can say, but, but, but I've been here. I've, I've spent every, been every Sabbath. I don't miss a Sabbath. I, I keep all the fasts. I, I go to the feast. He said, just because you say, Lord, Lord, shall not enter the kingdom, but he that does the will of my Father, uh, which is in heaven. So we have a criteria thrown at us by God. He expects something more out of each one of us than what sometimes we want to put out. Titus, chapter 1, verse 16. Titus 1.16 They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work a reprobate. People, been in the church for years, I know God. I know what He wants. I can remember back in Houston before we left, and probably... 74, 70, is either 73 or 74, a man left the church. And he said, I know where the church is. I know what God wants. I know God. I know what He wants. But right now, I have other things to do. And when push comes to shove, I'll be back. Will he? Where's his integrity? He was called. He was given the same knowledge I was given. Same knowledge you've been given. But he walked away. He professes to know God. But does he know God? The word reprobate there means someone that is cast aside, put out. You can go back to go back to Romans chapter one. Romans 1, verse 16. Talks about a reprobate. Verse 16 in Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek also, also to the Greek. So Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. Ask yourself. There's something you may put on that list. Am I ashamed of the gospel? Am I ashamed? Well, I say, no, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed a bit. But I sure love my drinking. I sure love watching women. I sure love TV. I sure love bragging how great I am. then you must be ashamed because God says that's not what you do. For wherein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. How do you live? Well, I've got, a, I've got this problem. I'm going to run over here and get this fixed or do that or... 
I don't think God can handle that problem, so I'm going to go get somebody else to do it for me. No, we don't say that, but our actions, maybe that's what our actions show. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. You know, he gives us the truth and expects us to hold that truth in righteousness in our heart. And if you hold it in righteousness, you're living by that word. And so when he sends someone to teach us and they pound on the lectern, they tell us to wake up, but we sleep on. They say to wake up, and oh, I'm awake. Did you hear what I said? Uh, you know, it, it was brought out, I can remember that brief of mine years ago. A person went up to the minister, I was standing there, and he said, that was a great sermon you gave. That was a really powerful sermon. He said, what did I say? Uh... Um, uh, I don't know. Well, how do you know it was a good sermon? Because I slept through it, probably. He just—he was powerful and he was charismatic and he could reach out, but the message didn't reach in. It didn't come into his heart because his heart wasn't aligned with him. So we hold the truth sometimes in unrighteousness because that which we made may be known of God, is manifested in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even the eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Went to Bryce Canyon last Sunday. While they were walking down and doing their long hikes, my wife, who can't, go down and do those hikes. We sat up at the top edge and enjoyed the view and God's creation. And there was a man who uh, was given a lecture. And uh, don't mind that, that's the swamp cooler. He's given a lecture. And he said, these things were created 300 million years ago. Well, <laughs> How do you know that? Well, because, you see, this rock sediment up here shows where there was a vast sea up here. And my wife says, what about down there, a thousand feet down? How come that shale's not down there when it's up here? You know, they don't understand that. See, they don't understand what God has done. And they, they really don't know God and what he's doing for us. So God shows us things, even his own power. The things that, if you look at the stars at night, I go out here at nighttime and it's vast stars indicate God's power. The fact that the sea can't go any farther than the seashore shows God's power because he said, you go this far and that's it. So we can look at what God has done. Because that they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Do we do that? We know God. Do we glorify Him? There have been going through the sermons on honoring God. We know God. Do we honor Him? 
neither were they thankful, because, but became vain in their imaginations, in their foolish hearts, was darkened. Sometimes we become so vain that we think we have the answers. I'll tell you, sat in service now for over 40 years, and I've heard inspired sermons and uninspired sermons, you know. In the past 10 years, I can see God working through our pastor. I can see God's hand in there. Do we honor Him because He's teaching us and following the directions? Are we really thankful that God has given us His knowledge and opened to us more so than other people? Professing themselves to be wise, they become foolish. Too often people are that way. This is an indication of a reprobate. Someone who professes himself to be wise when he's not. I've got the answers come to me. You know, I think of Fiddler on the Roof and when he sang the song, If I Were a Rich Man. And the whole thing was, if I was rich, everybody would come to me because when you're rich, you know, you have all the answers. You're, you're the greatest, wisest man around. But we become fools because people can ask questions that you can't answer. You don't know the answers to. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into the images made of incorruptible men and birds and foolish uh, four-footed beasts and creeping things. And we see that happening. God brought all the plagues against Egypt because that's what they did. Wherefore, God also gave them over to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. So where does lust come from? Out of your heart. And so the last commandment, you will not lust. You don't want things that belong to other people. God will give you what you need. So come from our own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And, you know, Daryl brought that out last week or the week before last. They have a problem in California with Proposition 9. So now they got a a reprieve for about two weeks. And they're rushing out here to commit horrible, sinful things. Men with men and women with women. And God says that's horrible. And change the truth of God into a lie and worship this and serve the creation more than the Creator who is blessed forever. And, amen. For this cause, God gave them up to vain affections, for even their own, uh, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. They are doing it left and right in California. It's against nature. You don't see this in the animal kingdom. It's not there. Only in mankind. And likewise, the men leave their natural affection for a woman. Uh, brute in their lust one toward another, vain men with men working that which is unseemly, receiving into themselves 
the recompense of their error, which was meat. Terrible situations in this world. So God says, who am I? He asked me, Nelson, who are you? Are you a ten or a one? You can't think of being a ten and be a one. You can read on. So how are you doing in your life? When you look back at all the problems that existed in man's life and the things that he points out to us, ask yourself, how am I doing? So the next question that comes up then is what does God want from me? What does God really want from me? We know in Isaiah 66, 2, we probably memorized this. The last part says, To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. What does God want from you? Does he want a ten? Five? A one? To me, I read this and I think, God wants from me, He wants me to be a ten. And so I think, how am I doing? What is it that God wants from you? Second Chronicles 7, verse 14. Second Chronicles 7, 14. What does God want from you? What is He expecting out of you? And can you do it, you know? Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, which are called by my name, well, who's he talking to? Who are his people called by his name? The church of God. Talking to each one of us, isn't he? Shall humble themselves. Oh, you mean get down to the fact that I am a sinner, like David said there in Psalm 51. Remember, he committed murder committed adultery, but when it finally was pointed out to him by Nathan the prophet, he went in Psalm 51 and repented and said, against you, talking to the Father and to Christ, and you only have I done this wrong. Have we humbled ourselves to that point to go through that list in Galatians 5, 19 through 20. Can I look at that list and say, uh, what did I do? Look at all these things that hit my life. Can I sit down and say, Father, Christ, Emmanuel, I've sinned against you. And all these things I do, I do against you. So he says, shall you humble yourself? So he wants us to be humble and pray. Do we pray 
are our prayers mechanical? You know, as a kid growing up, they said, they taught me to say, now I lay me down to sleep. Or they taught me the Lord's Prayer, and, and which wasn't the Lord's Prayer because I never knew the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is Matthew, John 17. They taught me to memorize Matthew 5.19 or 6.19. That's the Lord's Prayer. No, that's an instruction on how to pray. But prayer, in reality, is your communication to God. You sit down and talk to God like you would to another human being, only in respect, in honor, in dignity, and recognizing that God needs us to honor Him. Do we talk to God in that way that it is an outpouring of our life with total respect? And I don't care whether we're a hundred or we're five or six or ten or fourteen or whatever. We all should be calling on God. We all should be spending our time talking to Him. We can talk to each other. I know I get a daughter who will call and she'll talk for an hour. A lot of times just relating the way she lived her life. Can we spend an hour talking to our Father, relating on how we are living our life and what mistakes we make and what we have to change. I know all our prayers don't have to be long, drawn-out communications. Elijah proved that. We had him bring all the prophets of Jezebel into one place, and they spent the whole day crying and hollering and cutting and all these things, and he would just chide them and say, well, maybe God's gone off. Maybe he's chasing women or doing this and that. And at the end of the day, at the time of prayer, he fixed the sacrifice, poured lots of water on it, impossible to light a fire with all the water he put on it. And his prayer was about a minute, maybe a minute and a half long. But it was a contact with God because he'd already had plenty of contact with God. And if our contact and our communication with God is on a daily basis, and, a, and a, not a mechanical, but a, a, a relationship, like you would one with another with your children, or your husband, or your wife. Now, my wife and I do a lot of talking together. And, you know, that's something that we ought to be spending with God. We can get down on our knees and say, Dad, you know, I have this problem. Just, just like you would talk to a friend and, and relate your shortcomings. So he expects us to be humble and communicate with him and to seek his face. You know, ask him for help. I don't care what the problem might be. He says, come to me. Seek my help. Seek my guidance. I'll help you. And turn from their wicked ways. So again, have you made that list? That list of wicked things that you might do against God? Because like David said, against God are we sinning. It's against the Father. It's against our husband-to-be. The woman who was 
thought herself as a ten was lying. When she stripped off her hair, when she took off her makeup, when she when she dismantled, basically, almost thought she was a robot. <laughs> but are we that way? Can we sit down in front of God and say, I'm great and I'm a number ten, and then start dismantling by going through mistakes that we make in our own life? Because we'd rather cover them up. We'd rather plaster them over with whatever it takes to make me look good. I want to look good for my fellow human beings. But in reality, we need to look good for God. We need to look good for Christ. Because He wants to marry you. But we can look good to each other. And we can put on a facade that, man, that guy is really spiritual. He's got it made. He's going to be in the kingdom. I know it. I can see by the way he walks. But what does God think? It's only between you and God you're going to know whether you are a ten inwardly or outwardly or somewhere in between. So we have to turn from our wicked ways what He wants. And then He says, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins, and will heal their land. God wants to give you everything. Like Esther was given the opportunity to be queen of a nation. God wanted to give it to her, and she wanted it because she listened to the tutor, the teacher. No, Christ isn't going to stand in front of you and won't come to you tonight in your bed or see you alongside the street somewhere and tell you you got to change. But he will send an instructor like he did to Adasa. Someone to say, here's what you look like. And this is what you're going to look like. Here's the way you are now, and this is the way you're going to have to become. And God says, if you listen, if you follow... Hey, I'm there. I'm going to give you what you need. I will do that. Makes a promise. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace, wherefore he said, uh, he said, God resists the proud. So, certainly God doesn't want you to be proud, does he? I'm God's poor. I'm God's lowly. I'm God's whatever. And we brag about being poor or whatever. We're proud of being that way. And God hates pride. I'll tell you right up front, God hates pride. So he says, I resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. It's too easy to submit to the devil. So he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But we would like to be so close because this society and all this glimmer and glamour and 
all these things and you know I'd make more money and I can if I had a better job and if I had if I had a better house or a better car or, or whatever. Satan's out there saying, Hey, yeah. Look at this person, they got a brand new car. You don't. Yours is jalopy. It's not going to make it to town. You need to get another car. Is that true? Do you really need it? God says resist Satan's pulls. And whether it be a personal item that you want, or the music, or the TV, or the food you eat, or association that you make with different people. Satan's out there bringing these things to you. You know, he knows who you are. You know, I, I did a sermonette once in a, in a hall. It was toward the evening. It was, you know, no... had him turn the lights out, and I, I lit a match, and I said, can anybody see the match? Well, sure. The whole place could see that match. That's what you are to Satan. He knows who you are. But if we humble ourselves and submit to God, Satan can't touch you. Remember Christ, Emmanuel said to uh, Peter, you know Peter? I'll paraphrase it. You know Peter? Satan wants you. He's out to get you, Peter, if he can but I won't let him have you. I won't let him have you. And Christ is saying that to each one of us. I'm not going to let God, I'm not going to let Satan have you because you love me and you're following the things I want you to do. So, draw nigh to God and he will draw close to you through prayer, through Bible study, through obedience. He's going to be there. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Again, goes back. What am I doing wrong? I can't purify my heart unless I sit down and go through these things and say, this is the problem. This is something you need to change. So I can't purify my heart unless I search it out. Purify your hearts. You double-minded. Double-minded person is one who wants to be in the world and be in God's way. Who wants to eat from Satan's table and from God's table. It's like the guy who's straddling a fence. I hope you don't slip because you fall into the fence. No, God doesn't want that. He said, draw nigh to me and cleanse yourself and don't be double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep and let your laughter become turned to mourn and your joy to have heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Eternal and He shall lift you up. If we humble ourselves like David did, He'll pick us up. Promises that. Speak not evil one to another. Do we do that? There's another factor you can write down on your list. Do I have a tendency to speak evil at other people? He that speaks evil to his brother judges his brother and speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, are you not doers of the law but a judge? 
we put ourselves in God's position. When we judge somebody else for a mistake they make, you know, again, back to Matthew 7, it's the beam in my eye keeps me from seeing what's wrong with me. Not what's wrong with somebody else, it's what's wrong with me. Because my pride, my arrogant attitude might be blocking the way. It's like being in the middle of a forest and saying, I can't see the forest because of all the trees around, you know. So where do you, what does God want from you? I should put it that way. What does God really want from you? Acts 5, 29 says we ought to obey God where Peter and, was, and Paul were attacked by others. He said we ought to obey God than men. But it's more easy, isn't it, for us to obey other people and put God aside? Proverbs 21, 3. What does God want from you? To do justice, judgment, and more and is more acceptable to be to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the eternal than to sacrifice. Sometimes we say, I sacrificed everything to come out here. Did you? Did you really sacrifice everything? Do we have judgment, right judgment? Remember Matthew twenty three, Bill went through sermonette on mercy. One of the key points there in Matthew 23:23, judgment, mercy, and faith. That's what's required. That's what God wants from each one of us. Another question I wanted to get get in, something to think about, because it's important at this point in time for each one of us. We heard even in the announcements that time is short. That's coming on this country. This nation will die of a major heart attack. The question is, are you ready to show those who God calls and brings out here how to follow Christ? Can they look at you and say, hey, that's the way to go. That person really is listening and obeying and doing what they are told. Are you ready? Can you look back on your list and say, I have corrected this, this, and this. I am working at being a 10. Inwardly a 10. I want to be what God wants. Will these people see you as a 10? A true 10. Or will they see you as a false ten? Who looks good on the outside, but when they look at the way you live your life, they say, I don't know. Uh, I'm kind of leery about that person. I'm kind of leery of the way they live their life. They say they're Christians. They say they love God. But I just don't understand it. They don't do what they say. You know, Paul said in Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. So if 
we can say to someone coming, follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, are you ready to say that? Because are you really, truly following Christ? Maybe you think you are, because remember, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The only one that can know your heart is God. Jeremiah 17.10 God tries the reins of your heart. He looks into here like the eunuch did with Odasa. He looked at her heart. He saw a ten. The guide who looked into the heart of a girl and saw a ten. Nobody else did, but he did. Can God look in your heart and say, that's a ten? Or is our outward appearance a ten until we get washed with the water of the Word and all our beauty and grace disappears and then we get hit with a trial and we lose an arm, we take out an eye because, you know, it bothers us. Are you ready to be a light to those around? One more question. Think about this as parents, as a husband or a wife. Uh, I relate back to a sermon that Gordon did, uh, not this one, but the one before where he was on vacation. He talked about... Uh, at the, at the uh, uh, AI, when, uh, not AI, but at Jericho, when Israel took over and the walls fell, and God said, Go into Jericho and destroy everything. Take nothing out. The only thing that can be saved from Jericho would be Rahab and her family. But what did Achan do? He found something that he. Well, hey, this is pretty good. I take some gold and some of this stuff and hid it. And so when they came to Ai to fight, many people died. And Moses, I mean, yeah, Joshua said, what's going on? Well, what's the problem here? You helped us at Jericho. Why can't you take this little town of Ai and help us? And he said, because there's sin in the camp. And what happened? They brought the families, and one family was brought, and it was Achan. And said, what did you do? And he took stuff that was not to be taken. And what was the end of the whole matter? Achan died. Achan's wife died. Achan's children died. Because one man didn't do what was right. So the question comes to, what will happen to us? Will it be us as a spiritual family here? Or in your own immediate family? If we fail to make the change that God wants, who will come up short? Now, we all want to go to a place of safety. And we all want to marry Christ. We all want to be a ten. 
We all want to be what God wants. But what if we're sneaky and do things that's not right and we're actually a six or a five or a two? Outwardly, we've looked fantastic, but God knows your heart. What's going to happen to your family? Will your children make it? How about you husbands? Will your wife be left behind along with you? Or you wives, will you cause your husbands not to make it? Or us as a group, what if we as the leadership here sin? Will it cause all the rest of you to fall? We can look back at the same thing happened with uh, back when Dathan the Byron and, uh, came against Moses. Dathan and Byron wanted Moses' job, didn't they? Korah wanted Aaron's job. Dathan and Byron and Aaron, I mean, uh, Korah convinced a lot of people to go contrary to God's way of life. 270 leading people of the nation died. Thousands of other people died. Dathan and Abiram's families perished because they tried to do what wasn't their job, because they didn't listen and obey. So as a family, a spiritual family, or as an individual family, fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, will your family go to a place of safety? Because you're obedient and you're an inward ten? Haggai 2, verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, said the Eternal, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, said the Eternal. And work, for I am with you, said the Lord of hosts. God is with us. He wants us to make the change. How are you doing? Ask yourself again, who am I? A one? Inwardly, a ten? Outwardly, maybe a one because I don't look the greatest. I'm not the prettiest. I'm not the strongest man around. I'm not the one stands up in front of there and I got the muscles. We've seen a lot of those. You really can't understand and know a person until you know them from their heart. You know what they do. We've seen that happen time and again. Who am I? Have I made the changes? Can I write down a list of things I need to change? Will someone look at me and say, I want to go that way because they live God's way? Or will I be the person that causes the downfall and thousands of people be kept from going to a place of safety?
including myself and my wife and my children. Who am I?